If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Jesse Kelly Show. Let's honor some heroes on a Memorial Day show. It is me. I am live in the chair. I need to set some things up for you tonight because I realize there's a chance there are a bunch of new people listening to the show or, or whatnot. Normally, the Jesse Kelly Show is a lot of fun. We laugh. I make irreverent jokes. We do talk a lot of politics and food, and I tell stupid stories. And it's just, it's it's a political show that'll put a smile on your face. Maybe not tonight. Oh, I think you'll enjoy it because there's going to be tons of history and we're going to honor heroes and whatnot. But on Memorial Day, every single year, we always have, and Lord willing, we always will, we do a three-hour show to honor the veterans. We don't do any live ad reads. Obviously, we have commercial breaks. That's fine, but there won't be any live ad reads. I have, as scheduled now, four different veterans I know coming on the show to talk about comrades in arms they've lost. I have a list here of names people have emailed in. We're going to talk history around some of these battles. We're going to spend three hours honoring the fallen. Honoring the the fallen. That is what today is. And that's all today is on Memorial Day. You've heard me say it before and I will say it again. 
I know you're a nice person. I know you're a polite person. I don't have that burden, but I know you do. I, I know all these things. Today is not the day to thank a veteran or a first responder or anything like that. Those who signed up and went overseas or at home, sometimes these things happen in training, those who signed up and gave their lives for their country and gave up the entire rest of their lives, no wife, no kids, no grandkids, no career, no nothing, they deserve at least one day a year that's exclusively for them. Do they, for them, do they not? We deserve, I should say they deserve, I mean, a day that is unwatered down. And I know unwatered is probably not a word, but I went to community college, so what's a word now? You know exactly what I mean. Many of you have emailed in names, as I asked you to, of people you wanted honored. Jeremy Griffin, Army, Afghanistan. William P. Byrne, Marine Corps, training accident. Carl Denunzio, Army Corporal. Vietnam, Beckworth, USMC, KIA, Alan Auger, USMC, Gulf War, so on and so forth. You will hear me reading names like that over and over and over and over again throughout the show. I'm going to read Silver Star citations, maybe uh, Distinguished Service Cross citations, Medal of Honor citations. I'm going to talk about a dog, Navy Cross Things you emailed in. We are going to spend three hours honoring heroes who gave it all and geeking out on history. Does that sound like a plan? We got Green Berets coming on the show to talk about fallen comrades, regular army guys, Marines. It's going to be it's gonna be a, a show I believe we have an obligation to do, and it's something we're going to do every single year. I'm gonna begin here. Because there's so much I can get to, and undoubtedly I'm going to fail to properly honor everyone the way they deserve to be honored. But all I can promise to do is the best I can do, right? I'm going to start here with this email, actually. Jesse, this is my grandfather. He sent over, uh, by the way, a picture of a bunch of medals. This is my grandfather, Lieutenant Colonel Eddie Bryan. He bravely fought in the Battle of Guadalcanal in World War II. A decorated Marine shot twice in the gruesome battle. I can't imagine what he saw or how hard he fought. It wasn't until I turned 30 that I realized the hell and heroism our bravest go through. They just don't make them like this anymore. Thanks for all you do, Jesse. Semper Fi. Says I can say his name. His name is Ike. Guadalcanal. I mean, go give your life on Guadalcanal. What? What was Guadalcanal? Sounds nice, right? Almost doesn't, doesn't sound too bad. Maybe go there and sip some pina coladas, right? Guadalcanal was one of the beginning huge battles of World War II in the Pacific Campaign where we took on the Japanese. Listeners of my show will know the Japanese attacked us in Pearl Harbor not to defeat us, but to simply delay us so they could take over a bunch of islands in the Pacific and fortify them. And they believed the soft Americans would be too weak to come take all them out and root them out, especially because the Japanese fought to the death. Guadalcanal 
might be the worst freaking place in World War II. Look, there's a lot of arguments. You can make a lot of arguments for a lot of different places. One of the things you should know about Guadalcanal on top of the jungles and the heat and the disease and the misery and everything else, on top of all these things, this was one of our introductory battles to the Japanese and how the Japanese would fought. It's not as if it was more pleasant for the guys who fought later in Pacific Islands, but this is, I mean, Americans had heard rumors that the Japanese would commit suicide, that they would fake being injured and, and then blow you up with a grenade while you're trying to give them aid. They had heard rumors about these bonsai charges where the Japanese would just charge at you over and over as you slaughter them. They'd heard some rumors no one really knew yet. And then you show up in Guadalcanal. Marines show up and these guys just keep charging at us over and over and over and over again. No matter how many of them we kill, they keep charging at us. And there's more when it comes to Guadalcanal. Stuff you don't hear about often. Uh, it's hard to actually dig up actual names. In fact, in all the books I've ever read about Guadalcanal and the men who lost, lost their lives there, I've heard these stories. There's never a name attached to it. Did you know we had guys eaten by crocodiles on Guadalcanal? No, they don't make movies about that, right? It's not sexy. Diving on a grenade, charging a pillbox. Carrying your buddy 500. We're going to tell these stories too, of course, but those are all the sexy stories that make it into the movies. Look at what he did. Look at the heroism. He killed 9,000 enemy. Yes, that's heroic. It's awesome. And we're going to honor those guys today. Do you know we had guys die going down to one of the various little creeks and rivers to take a bath? Imagine what that's like. Imagine that moment of terror. You're an Iowa farm boy. Pearl Harbor happens. You run down to the recruiting office like a patriot and sign up to go fight for your country. Crocodile. You've never seen a decent-sized lizard in your life. And you end up in a crocodile's jaws underneath the water in a creek in some hellhole called Guadalcanal. Guadalcanal was a terrible, terrible battle. And it was one of those things that kind of made the Marine Corps famous because the Marines dug in there and uh, the Army too, Army too, but the Marines mainly on Guadalcanal dug in there and put in work fighting off a relentless enemy. And there's going to be more Pacific World War II talk during the show. Just inevitably, it was so terrible. Those guys ended up winning a bunch of battles. So I don't need to belabor the point endlessly here but think about i mean just think about this conceptually dying for your country in a war it sounds romantic especially to young men right men want to go off and have a good fight and adventure and be a hero and look at and if you're a young man who thinks like that good countries are built countries are saved countries are won by men who think in those terms you're not bad you're not wrong you're right but man, is it terrible when you're there. And man, is it terrible when they don't come home. And a lot of them didn't come home from Guadalcanal. 
And again, like all other battles, we'll talk about this today. Guadalcanal, remember, was mainly about an airfield. We were fighting our way through the islands of the Pacific so we could take airfield after airfield after airfield and move our guys closer to mainland Japan so we could take our heavy bombers and pound those guys to dust. So, Lieutenant Colonel Eddie Bryan, United States Marine Corps, Semper Fi. Thank you for what you've done, sir. Thank you for what you've done. We're going to play that a few times throughout the show, just at various times to make sure we understand why we are here, why we are here this evening, or maybe it's the next day and you're catching up on the podcast. We are here to honor the fallen for three hours on the Jesse Kelly show tonight. We'll be back to do it some more. It is the Jesse Kelly show on a Memorial day. And remember, I, I mean, if you want, you can email the show. If, if I, I'm sure I've missed names. I, I did what I could do. To, we did what we could do to try to gather as many names of the fallen as we could from ones you emailed in. Jesse at jessekellyshow.com. Jesse at jessekellyshow.com. Look, we're not going to throw them away. If we don't get them today, we're going to get them next year. I've got, uh, I've got a, a, two different Green Berets coming on the show to tell stories. Uh, if you're... If you have some time on your hands, I would highly recommend sticking around about 10 minutes from now. I've read you before the Medal of Honor citation of Robert Miller. He earned the Medal of Honor in Afghanistan. We have somebody who was on that patrol with him. He's going to come on the show and do a lot more than read a Medal of Honor citation. He's going to tell you in detail what happened you might want to strap in for this one that's coming up about 10 minutes from now we have clay martin still and air force pj bk who you know braxton mccoy uh, as much history stuff as i can possibly get and we have we have some baton death march stuff because i feel like that's something that needs to address uh be addressed it's not addressed very much we have a lot tonight on the jesse kelly show as we just honor the fallen again this is a different show they much different than we normally do we're not even doing any live ads or anything like that. This is just a show about the fallen. Jesse, Chris should take some pride in this one, he says. My dad was an army chaplain rabbi in Vietnam and told me there were 13 chaplains killed during the war. Two of them, the first and the last, were rabbis. How about that? I didn't know that. The first, Lieutenant Colonel Meyer Engel, Army, was thrown from his Jeep after it hit a mine and died the next day from heart failure. The last... Captain Morton Singer, Army, was killed instantly when his transport plane uh, crashed shortly after takeoff. The South Vietnamese ground crew had mistakenly filled it with jet fuel. Both were on their way to perform services at forward operating bases. Thank you, Jesse, for honoring our fallen heroes. Please say my name and, more importantly, my father's name. His name is David Dresden. His father's name was Colonel Sanford Leonard Dresden. There we go. Let's read a 
couple different citations. We do a lot of Medal of Honor citations. What we don't do very much of is the other incredible awards that are that are earned, silver stars and distinguished service crosses and Navy crosses. You read some of these citations, which I guess are considered lower than the Medal of Honor because that's the highest one. You read some of these and you say to yourself, my word, lower, you've got to be kidding me. Don Merrill B. Uh, Bierbauer, Army Air Force, World War II Europe. The President of the United States, authorized by Act of Congress, July 9th, 1918, takes pride in presenting the Distinguished Service Cross, posthumously, to Major Don Merrill Bierbauer, United States Army Air Forces, for extraordinary heroism in connection with military operations against an armed enemy while serving as a pilot of a P-51 fighter airplane in aerial combat against enemy forces on the 9th of August, 1944, while leading his squadron on an armed reconnaissance mission in the European Theater of Operations. On that date, Major Bierbauer located an enemy airfield on which many aircraft were parked, in order to test ground defenses, Major Bierbauer made an experimental pass at the field, destroying an enemy plane and a gun emplacement. Then, when his squadron swept over the field from one direction, he fearlessly attacked from another quarter, boldly exposing himself to concentrated fire from all sides of the field and effectively screening his comrades from the intense ground fire. Major Bierbauer's airplane was struck repeatedly and crashed into the ground. The outstanding heroism and devotion to duty displayed by Major Bierbauer on this occasion reflect great, the highest credit upon himself and the armed forces of the United States. Herbert R. Amy Jr., Marine, World War II specific, uh, Pacific, he won the Silver Star. President of the United States of America takes pride in presenting the Silver Star to Lieutenant Colonel Herbert, Herbert R. Amy Jr., United States Marine Corps, for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity as commanding officer, 2nd Battalion, 2nd Marines, 2nd Marine Division during action against enemy Japanese forces on Tarawa, Gilbert Islands, the 20th of November, 1943. After completing organized dis- or organization of assault waves incident to landing on the well-fortified Japanese beachhead, Lieutenant Colonel Amy gallantly led his battalion forward in the face of devastating machine gun fire and mortar fire. When the amphibious tractor in which he was riding reached an unpassable coral reef, he was forced to abandon the vehicle in order to save it and led his men through the treacherous waters. Mortally wounded by hostile machine gun fire before reaching the shore, he refused assistance and urged his command to continue without him. His brilliant leadership, great personal value, and unrelenting devotion to duty in the face of grave peril serve as an inspiration to the men under his command and were in keeping with the highest traditions of U.S. Naval service. He gallantly gave his life for his country. Tarawa, you may not know much about it. It doesn't get a lot of play. It was a horrible affair. Remember, landing an amphibious landing is not as easy as it looks in the movies. There are currents. There are different depth levels of the water. And just we just didn't know many of these things. And our landing craft, as we were trying to land on Tarawa, a lot of it got caught, like this one did, out in the coral out there in the ocean. Well, if it gets caught, your landing craft is vulnerable. They're shooting artillery. They're shooting mean machine guns at it. And your men are vulnerable in it, so you have to get out of it. And at Tarawa, that's what made it so awful. So many of our Marines had to get out 
and wade in through chest-deep, neck-deep water with their guns held above their heads while the Japanese were on shore just raking them to death with these machine guns and artillery fire. We had so many Marines who bravely just kept marching forward as they were being slaughtered at Tarawa. It's not talked near enough. It's, a, it's just an awful affair. But we honor every single one of them, do we not? All right. Now it's time. We have a man, Javier Mackey, Green Beret, coming on. He was on the patrol with Robert Miller when Robert Miller gave his life and earned his Medal of Honor. We're going to let Javier have the floor. I have no idea how long this is going to take. It might be a while. He's going to walk us through what happened with that hero when he gave his life for his country. You ready for it? Hang on. It is the Jesse Kelly Show on a very special Memorial Day show where we take the entire show and just honor the fallen, honor those who frankly can't hear it, but it's still important for a country to remember them and honor them. It's important for the future generations to hear us honoring them Joining me now, Javier Mackey. Javier, before we get into Robbie Miller, who are you? Um, so I served with Rob on the Special Forces uh, Operational Detachment uh, for two for two years, and uh, I I was his uh, engineer. He was the weapons sergeant, and uh, we served together for about two two and a half years. On the on the on our first both of our first team, and um, I retired. You know, I survived the event that Rob gave his life for, but uh, I go I went on to deploy several more times after that uh, incident, and later retired out of the army back in 2018, and I've been enjoying my life as a civilian since. Who was, before we get to uh, the, that day and the incident and whatnot, tell us, tell us about Rob. Who was this guy? What kind of guy was he? What did he love? What did he hate? What, what what's, did you guys, were you close? Tell us about him. So, all right. So we first met Robbie the day he arrived to the team room. And I, I don't remember, but it was in 2005. I'm not sure which um, month of the year it was. But we had been prepared prior to his arrival um, that we were going to get a eight. He was part of the 18 X-ray program, which was uh, a recruiting effort that recruited uh, prospective Green Berets off the street, and they had to be like. You know, there's a lot of criteria they had to fit. One of which they had to be 21 years old with some college experience. Uh, Robbie was one of those individuals, and then in 2005, uh, after having gone to basic training, completed airborne school, and all his requirements uh, for getting selected to be a Green Beret and the qual- uh, Special Forces qualifications, he arrived to our team uh, ready to go. And when we met Robbie, so a little backstory to our arrival. We, his arrival into the army is a lot different than ours, than the guys who came ahead of him. How so? Um, so our process of getting into the to, into, to becoming a Green Beret was a lot different. 
uh, we had to first have had at least four years in the Army prior to going to selection. Uh, we had to be an E-4 or a specialist or a corporal promotable to sergeant before going to the selection process. And then once you were selected, there was no preparation course provided for us. And we, we went to selection. And while we were in the Q course, once you got selected, you'd go through the Q course. And that's where we started meeting these x-rays. And everybody loved them um, because by the time they got to the point where we were at, they were groomed to be, you know, they were, they were groomed and they understood the expectations that got them there. That being said, um, when we got to our teams, you know, we got a little bit of hazing from the guys when, when we got there and it was, it was a little rough for me. I'm going to be a, it was a hard transition for myself. And so you know how it is when, uh, you're the you've got just gone through the gauntlet of being the new guy, and then you get a new guy on the team. You just mm-hmm. wait. Yeah. <laughs> so we were all waiting to see us younger guys on the team. We were all having gone through everything that we'd gone through. We were waiting to see what what's going to be a reaction. You know, how are they going to treat? How are the older senior guys going to retreat the new guys? And Robert Robbie was the first. Um, 18 x-ray to walk through that door and when he walked through that door the senior guys treated him like he had been there for five years and that he had a reputation like they love and we kind of looked at ourselves like w2ef dude what the heck and we looked at this kid and there's nothing we can do but like him because he came in with this infectious smile a little goofy but you can, he was in shape and he knew his guns. And so I was, I was like, at first I was a little jealous, um, Mm -hmm. a little bitter because he didn't get the same treatment and same welcome that we came in with. But I was glad that the team had moved on from that mentality and uh, welcomed, you know, the next generation in like, Hey, you know, it was kind of stupid to put these guys through what they, what they went through and it's time to change that. And so with, with that, Javier, sorry to, sorry to interrupt you real quick. Uh, the 99.99% of the people listening, they aren't green berets and I'm certainly not a green beret. How big is a team? What's a team made up of? What's he walking into? All right. So he's walking into, uh, each operational team has a captain. All right. Okay. And then after the captain, you have a warrant officer. So the captain's MOS is a uh, 18 Alpha, and that's the mil- Army's military occupational specialty numbering code for that position. And then the warrant officer is a warrant. Uh, a warrant officer is someone who was an NCO at one point and uh, became a tech- technician. Um, a technician of sorts, so he is given the designation of 180 Alpha. Um, and the the warrant officer is probably one of the more he's probably the least spoken uh, spoken about, but probably but is the one of the key 
um, leaders within a special forces attachment. Why? Um, what makes the warrant officer so important? Again, no, I'm sorry. Well, I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. again. We're speaking with no, no, Javier no. Mackey, so, former special forces. He's coming on. He's going to tell us pretty soon about uh, uh, Robbie Miller, Medal of Honor, the earner in uh, Afghanistan. All right. Why, why is the warrant officer so important? Warrant officers, like they break, like they analyze and break down the scope of the mission and help us understand it better, help the members of the team understand it better. And as with that, the captain, he's the face, he's the face of the team. And he is the one who, who's talking to the, uh, he's the one leading key leader engagements with the local populace. He's the one uh, selling the missions to his fellow officers. Whereas the warrant officer, he's getting, he's diving into the details of the mission um, as far as the personalities of the guys that we're going after, as far as the terrain analysis. I mean, he's connecting the dots um, of information and serves as a chief of a chief of mission, you know, uh, for the for the captain. So the captain can focus on his work. The team sergeant can focus on his work. And then um, the team sergeant, who's the next important uh, figure on the team, he manages the NCOs, the rest of the team. Um, He is the. He is the glue that keeps the team, the glue and the lubricant that keeps the machine going. Um, he is he works hand in hand with each of the seniors on the team. Um, so he's the, the Zulu uh, is the the highest ranking NCO on the team, and then you have the Bravo. Okay. Um, uh, the rest of the these are just team guys, regular team guys on the team. From here on out. Hold on. Let me interrupt you again real quick. We have yep. to go to a quick break. Uh, we'll be right back with Javier Mackey. He's going to tell us what this hero did in Afghanistan. Give us just one sec. We'll be right back. It is the Jesse Kelly Show, and I don't want to waste any time here. We have Javier Mackey, Special Forces, on the phone with us right now discussing a hero who gave his life in Afghanistan. He just kind of laid out the situation. What's the team look like? Okay, why do I have a Medal of Honor citation in front of me with this guy's name on it? What did he do? (laughs) Well, Robbie, Robbie, he led an assault. Um. So let me back up a little bit. We, mm-hmm. um, so we were on the night. So some, sometime prior to January 24th, we received a, uh, some information that, um, that there was a, a, um, a high value target in the area that we've been to before and that there's an opportunity we can go capture, um, He'll capture this this individual. So we started our mission planning, and Robert Miller was the junior um, weapon sergeant on the team, or the senior weapon sergeant on the team. We had two at the time, and uh, he his 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 sole responsibility is the weapons and training. So he while well, he he spent the lex that whole week leading up to the mission with along with another or other weapon sergeant uh 
getting our Afghans ready to conduct this mission. Along with myself, I I was the eight, I'm the 18 Charlie, the engineer on the team. And my job basically is to get the logistics down, making sure we have the vehicles ready to go and come up with any obstacle clearing plans um, that we'll need to, uh, to disrupt along the way. So come January 24th, we get this mission. Uh, we, we've done the planning, we've done the rehearsals, and we sent our, Afghan, um, our Afghans away to go to get a little bit of R&R before this time, um, before we were about to execute this mission. And we soon, um, we got the green light to go. And, the, you know, we, the plan was for us to link up with our Afghans at a place called Checkpoint Delta, which was about, I don't know, eight kilometers north of the fire base. We get there. Uh, Robbie and the team, we get there. And something was kind of off from the get-go. Um, there was some confusion. Um, we didn't recognize a lot of the Afghans that were supposed to be there, but nevertheless, we continue on with the mission. So we hop in our trucks and we continue north, and we get about eight kilometers. We get another about four or five kilometers into the valley, and we hit our first obstacle, which was a boulder in the road. And, um, and this is important because it was only one road. Um, there's no way. There's no getting around this boulder because on one side of the boulder is a mountain and on the other side of the boulder is a river and there's no go- driving around it. So um, I was tasked to go blow that boulder up. I blew it up and we continued forward and we got to these switchbacks and the same thing again, approached another border boulder. Well, some, you know, and Javier, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Again, speak with Javier Mackey, Green Bray. He's telling us a story. Is this something that's common? Are you is are, are these boulders in the road? Are you thinking this is done on purpose, or this is just the norm? I mean, it's a road, but beside a mountain. Well, this is definitely new. I, like I, we spent by this point, Rob, myself, and majority of the team has spent two years in this valley, and we we know the people, we know the patterns, but this was new, totally okay. new. And so we, we come across the second boulder and we blew it up. And in between the interdiction of the first boulder and the second boulder, um, we get news from, um, we have some assets available to us that let us know that where the guy that we were going to, um, where we were going, he wasn't no longer there. He had moved across the river and he was hunkered down, um, on the uh, east side of the river. Uh, this river runs north and south. So we continue on to this little plateau, and it's still dark outside. Um, the, it was, a, it was a, very, a very cold night. We had the moon having quite, the moon hadn't quite uh, crescent over the mountains. So we're still in the, in the shadow of the lunar uh, skylight. And we're in this deep valley. And, um, we line up our trucks and we did something that not a lot of people can say that they did during, um, in Iraq or in Afghanistan and has set up an ambush to normally we're getting ambushed. But in this point we were able to set up an ambush with left and right security, just like you would do in training and ambush our enemy. 
and this is a very rare occasion. So we all, but the only difference is we had a uh, terrain feature, this river in between us and the people we were ambushing. And once it was confirmed that these guys were walking out, um, we opened up our ambush and we unleashed a uh, hellfire of destruction on these guys that lasted for quite a bit because they were, they were still shooting back at us. And uh, Robert Miller, who was in our second truck, he was manning the Mark 19. Uh, this is an automatic grenade launcher that shoots a 40-millimeter uh, mm-hmm. linked grenade. And it's, it's, a, it's about 50 rounds of, or 32 rounds of uh, pure hate coming at you. If you don't, you know, if you only have one can linked together, but we usually have two or three cans linked in one mortar box. And he was, he was getting his gun on, on that. And that, this firefight goes on for an undetermined amount of time. Um, at the same time, we're, we're having, uh, we have ISR or, uh, we have a aircraft on station that's, uh, identify, it's marking targets for us. And we're shooting, and Robbie Miller's pretty much directing fires um, where the uh, ISR would, uh, where the aircraft platform would uh, indicate where there were troop movement, and he would hit it up with the Mark 19, and we would um, shoot at those at 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 his at his markings. Um, later, ceasefire was called. Yep. Javier, I'm sorry to do it again. It's, it's stinking radio. It's the way it is. Uh, Javier Mackey is being good enough to give us some uh, a real a real story about a hero that we lost here on this Memorial Day. Uh, we are going to go to another quick break. We're going to be back so he can continue. And I'm I'm glad you are taking your time and walking us through this so people can understand the situation. He's going to come back and he's going to continue to tell us what this man did, what he sacrificed for this country, for you, for me, for his teammates, mostly, I'm sure. Uh, We'll be right back on The Jesse Kelly Show. It is The Jesse Kelly Show on a Memorial Day special to honor the fallen. And I'm going to go right back to him because I know you're on the edge of your seat. I am as well. Javier Mackey, Special Forces, is joining us. He has been telling us uh, leading up to Robert Miller gave his life in Afghanistan. Won a Medal of Honor doing it. We have a citation. I can read it for you, but it doesn't even come close to doing justice to what he did. So I'm going to hand the floor back to Javier. Javier, please continue. You guys just ambushed a bunch of guys, and you're making li- their lives miserable. What? Continue. So the captain calls ceasefire. Each each of the leaders from the trucks consolidate, and it's been decided we have to go conduct a what they call a battle damage assessment. Um, from here on, I'm going to call it just a BDA. What that basically is, we're going to identify whether or not we actually killed who we were going after, or we can capture them if they're still alive, and and positively identify if there was no other civilian casualties or damages done. And so this is no, this is normally done to cover our butts, but it's also done to just to reaffirm that we actually did what we are there to do. And so we we have to go north a little bit and we cross a bridge and then we head back south where the ambush where we ambushed the individuals coming out of the compound where they were. And from what I can tell in the darkness, they had policed up 
all their bodies and it was really hard to determine people that we hit so that being said just to give a brief description uh so as we're walking south down the river's now on the right side of our of our patrol and it's and the, the trail starts to open up. It's a thin trail. It's about a, a meter or so wide, and it starts to open up where we have some level terraced uh, agricultural rocky um, rocky terrain. And uh, to the right, to the left, is a mountain. So they, they, we have this mountain off to our left, gently sloping up into a ridge, a finger like a finger-like uh, landmass that protrudes downward. And at the tip of the finger would be a, like a little draw. And on the other side of that draw was like a, another finger-like ridge line that comes down going towards the river. At that little intersection where the draw was and those two fingers met was a boulder. And Robbie's up front because he speaks Bashtu, he speaks French, he speaks Russian. <laughs> Got the kid was very. He came to the team knowing multiple languages, and while he was in Afghanistan, he pitched. He uh, learned Dari and Pashtu, and yeah. um, he was the strongest in Dari and Pashtu outside of our interpreters who were also with us. And so he was helping out with herding the cats of the Afghans that were in the patrol alongside us. So we get to this point where we're crossing this little rocky alcove, going towards this where this boulder is and the Afghans who are up front, this is their country, you know, we're, we're putting them up front and they, you know, you hear this Alawa Akbar and the next thing you know, you know, you hear automatic gunfire coming from the boulder towards our direction and our patrol opens up the Afghans who are with us. They just bug out. They, they're gone. They, they run towards the river uh, because there was some, uh, cover in that area and a marine who was attached to us he's trying to get them back into the fight so robbie is left in the front of this of the formation with myself staff sergeant nick mcgarry staff sergeant uh, uh rob gutierrez and irfan our uh, interpreter right behind him and then behind our little formation is the uh, headquarters, like the, the team sergeant, the uh, captain, the warrant officer, our 18 Fox, who's our intelligence NCO, and uh, one other person I can't remember at the time. But anyway, the captain gets hit in his open volley. Now we're, in, we're being ambushed. We just walked into a near ambush. And so immediately, Rob, who's up front, where that boulder was, Rob, interdicts the guy with the machine gun and he kills him and as now this is in the dark now and the aircraft that's above has this infrared light that only can be seen in under our nods and so they're marking targets that are in our area and are they flood they actually flooded this little draw where rob was kind of stuck at and it was nothing but him and Afghan, you know, um, insurgents. Uh. And, because, and so he's by himself. I'm about uh, about 50 meters behind him. And we're dealing with our own problems that I'll go into later. At this time, um, Rob is, he's, he's, he's operating the saw, a 249. This is a small, 
squad automatic weapon, and it shoots a five five six round belt fed gun. And he had a chopped down version of it, and hmm. he did. He was the only one in our patrol that didn't have a suppressor. So he is he engaged and killed fifteen to twenty five people within a three minute span. Oh. Um, he also uh, threw numerous hand grenades before he was hit. Um, during his exchange of fire, he was hit in the right. Uh, underneath his right armpit, it was a through and through. Uh, the last words he said was break contact, and he was heading towards me. And we, and you know, this is a, this is a mission that we did everything according to our SOP, and everything went down according to our SOP up until up until this happened, and um, and so. You know, Rob laid down his final uh, burst of gunfire, killing uh, five of the remaining guys in his area, which um, we were still trying to deal with at the same time. So at the same time when Rob got was hit, he said, you know, break contact. What had been going on with us is my captain, he was like I said, he was the first one in the exchange of fire to get hit, and he was down. And they were about another 50 meters behind our the position where we're at, where uh, Gutierrez and uh, McGeary and I we were we were trapped basically in the X, and we were still getting you know we were taking Whoa. effective gunfire at less than 25 meters. And um, lucky for us, we didn't have uh, we had suppressed M4s, and we were able to uh, interdict our targets effectively. Uh, thanks to um, the ISR platform identifying enemy combatants behind a wall that we're that was like five ten meters away from our area, and it was quite playing whack a mole for like tw- ten minutes. And during that time, the exchange of fire, I was hit. I received my first gunshot to the chest, and um, I stayed in the fight. Uh, it hit my magazine. I had, we had to, at the time the army started issuing these steel magazines, and I mean I didn't really feel the impact until I went to go grab for a magazine, and I couldn't I couldn't use it I couldn't use it to shoot my weapon. I hear Rob uh, say break contact, so I, I change mags and I go straight to you know I'm suppressing I'm doing suppressive fires. And he gives this last burst, and I do. I, I wait for him to pass me so I can do my automatic burst. And he didn't. And so I look over. I hit my, my floodlight on my rifle to see what was happening, and he was down. So I remember getting up and running over to, you know, saying, Rob's hit. And I ran up to him to see if, you know, maybe he tripped or whatever. And he, he was on his last breath. And um, I went quickly went back. I go and I told the guys, I go, hey, look, Rob is hit. I need you guys to come help me. So McGeary, Rob Gutierrez, and myself ran through gunfire to go back to Robbie to start um, rendering first aid. And Nick McGeary provided covering fire um, during that maneuver. He stayed there with the interpreter, uh, who also provided some security for him. Mind you, we're still we're still in the X. We're still in the kill zone. 
of the uh, fire the of their of the enemy's ambush, and we're doing the best we can to get ourselves out of it. And during this time period, our tact our SOP wasn't really. I, I kind of broke our SOP at this point by going to Rob, which under uh, normal circumstances we would have left them there until we had gotten the uh, fire superiority and the ability to outmaneuver the enemy and um, then get to them as uh, quick as possible. But I broke protocol on that and went directly to them uh, with the JTAC, which was another big no-no. Uh, he's the one guy controlling fires. So under gunfire, we we started to uh, render first aid to Rob, and it was at this time where I, I realized that Rob was dead. Um, it was a thrilling through. I couldn't find the gunshot wound at first. When I finally did, um, it was a chest. You know, I, I applied chest seal to it, and from that point on, it was there was nothing else I can do. I didn't find the exit wound until later, and I mean there was nothing I could do about it. I've beat myself up over it for years, and I've come to accept that. He, nobody would have survived that gunshot wound. And it's important that I continue to tell this story because hopefully both Rob Gutierrez and Nicholas McGeary, um, who are both up for the medal, you know, they've been recommended for the Medal of Honor as well. Um, their stories need to be told. And um, I'll continue to tell the story as I know it. Rob Gutierrez continued to fight it out while Nick McGarry continued to deal with the... Hold on, hold on, Javier. I'm sorry to do it again, my brother. I, I, I think this is probably a great time. Um, let me let me pause and bring you back uh, again. I just don't want to... I don't want to interrupt this story. I don't want to screw it up. So hang on real quick on the Jesse Kelly Show. We'll be right back so Javier Mackey can finish this up, please. It is the Jesse Kelly Show. Back again with Javier Mackey telling us the story of Robbie Miller, Medal of Honor earner in Afghanistan, and a couple other Green Braves who were up for the Medal of Honor. Javier, I'm sorry to interrupt. I had to do that again. Please continue, sir. So uh, Rob Gutierrez and ourselves, we're, we're at this point where we have to make some really tough decisions as to movement of Robbie's body and um, figuring out how we're going to complete this mission and so it was determined that rob gutierrez was going to call in some more um he's going to call in some uh aircraft uh strafing runs with the a-10 and they were going to be danger close and in in between the the gun runs we're going to attempt to move rob's body so the aircraft came through they got their cleared hot and you know they rained down their weapon airing on top of us at about it was danger close whatever danger close by definition and the in the air force regs and army regulations we we very well met that uh, criteria and um in between gun runs we attempted to move rob's body and we just couldn't do it i mean the rock the, the terrain was rocky uh, between trying to get his weapon and all this other stuff, it, it was just too hard. And then the second gun run came in, and after that gun run came in, and came a hellfire of RPG gunfire and small arms fire from a um, from one of the ridge lines, from a top of Jeez. one of the ridge lines. 
And so Rob and I, we, we interdicted those uh, targets. We suppressed their fires. And by this time, um, the Marine who had been trying to uh, hurt, hurt the cats with the Afghans had reappeared. And he was like, hey, I'm here. And we, you know, I, I made the determination. I was like, all right, hey, we're going to jump over this. There's a wall behind us, and we're going to go over this wall. We're going to try to communicate to our headquarters guys who are, you know, a couple hundred meters behind us that what the situation is and see if they can maneuver up to our position. What ended up happening was I realized I had gotten shot again, and this time it hit the shoot to talk, the, the push to talk to my radio. Um, the only operating radio that we had was the JTACs, and he was controlling he was controlling air with it. The decision was made by Gutierrez that he was going to maneuver with the Marine to a different spot to uh, suppress, to get more casts or you know some close air support um, fires on on uh, various aspects of the terrain, so that I can maneuver back to the um, CCP and report everything that was going on. Now, mind you, the, we, we still have an element of guys across the river, you know, pulling security, but they couldn't fire because in between, because we, we were positioned in between them and the enemy. So the only people that could actually fire were those who were on the ground. And that was, you know, Gutierrez, um, McGeary, what was, uh, Rob Miller, who we had to leave behind, and the Marine, and the rest of the team. So I eventually made it back to the CCP, and uh, Nick McGeary, he had made it back. Now, Nick, when, when we went to go fight it out with uh, to go pull Rob, Nick was pulling security with our interpreter, and Nick was, uh, he had effectively taken out eight guys that were, pop, you know, I mentioned the whack-a-mole situation he he effectively taken out um eight to 12 guys that was behind this wall but with uh by himself you know that fighting through (laughs) hand grenades tossing them back um and we like this is like we get back to the firebase and he's telling us everything that would happen that happened um and he's clearly shaken up I, i think i'm the most damaged at this point you know after being shot twice and now i'm seeing my you know having rob die in my arms and now I'm looking at my captain. My captain is blue and uh, trying to take it all in. And uh, so Nick, Nick McGeary, he, he put us in a security posture. We, Rob Gutierrez secured the area for a medevac. And then on the first bird that came, they put myself uh, and, the, and, the, and uh, Captain Cusick on the bird um, because he was injured. Uh, so... What happened after that was the uh, Nick McGeary linked up with uh, Rob Gutierrez along with the rest of the team, and they um, organized a counter assault um, between the two of them. They used the uh, the cast uh, the the cast from the aircraft, and they're maneuvering on the ground to outmaneuver the outmaneuver the uh, enemy killing several more and then uh being able to recover the body of uh rob miller um, so <sighs> javier um 
Is there anything else, anyone else you want to acknowledge really quickly before we sign off? And I cannot thank you enough for sharing the story of obviously not just not just Robbie Miller of all of all you heroes. My goodness, man! Is there is there anyone else needs a quick acknowledgement before we go? Third Special Forces Group, Third uh, Battalion is where we hail. We we have I think right now. See Rob Miller, uh, Matt Williams, Rob, uh, Ron Schur. You know, we have three solid Medal of Honor recipients and a hand, you know, there's easily a, you know, a couple other dozen more that I can say that were outstanding heroes for the last 20 years. And we fought side by side for 20 years in Afghanistan without complaining. Um, we love what we did along the way. We lost a lot of our good friends and, um, you know, it's really hard to talk about. I'm trying to hold it back, but uh, that's what today is. That's what this weekend is all about. It's not about the hamburgers and hot dogs. It's about remembering our buddies and uh, remembering, you know, the values in which our nation is uh, founded on. Amen, and, um, my brother. Amen. Yeah. I just want to tell you that was outstanding. I know that was not easy. Uh, the, the country is better off for having heard his story and the story of all you heroes. Semper Fi, my brother. Simplify. <sighs> Told you it was going to be a heavier, different show. All right, we we have more on Memorial Day. It is the Jesse Kelly Show on a Memorial Day. Very different show tonight. This is just a day where we honor the fallen, a show where we will honor the fallen. Joining me now, obviously he needs no introduction on this show, my friend BK, former super stud Air Force PJ, and now host of the World News with BK podcast. BK, first, is there somebody you want to honor here on this Memorial Day, or a bunch? Uh, yeah, you know, Jesse, there's there's a lot that I could uh, mention. One who was particularly close to me was my old supervisor and good friend, and that would be pararescue uh, Chief Master Sergeant Nick McCaskill. Uh, Nick was a uh, longtime PJ, obviously. He made it to E9, and he was still in the reserves while when he started working for the Central Intelligence Agency, and he was a paramilitary officer, ground branch operator. And he Hold on, uh, hold on was, real quick, Brie I I know you know, but... Tell people, I mean, we do have some civilians sure. who listen. What's that mean, ground branch operator? Sure. Uh, if you Google CIA paramilitary officer, for those of you guys who want to know more, these are the guys at the very tip of the spear. These are the guys who are out in the boonies training their men to go do direct action raids, accompanying them. They often they work hand-in-hand -hand with Joint Special Operations Command, guys like Delta Force, SEAL Team 6, uh, drone strikes, uh, they are the tip of the spear. Um, they're made up of very highly qualified former military members, often guys with you know decades of experience in Delta, SEAL Team 6, Joint Special Operations Command, and um, they are they, these are the guys who are, are really out on the front lines. And um, Nick's, the way actually Nick died is still classified they do have a story out and i'm not going to say like exactly what happened but if you google nick mccaskill you'll see that you'll see a story about how he died and all i'll say about it is that's not what happened uh it was different circumstances and the only way i found out about it was talking to some other pjs and some other cia officers 
And I just tell you, he was a, he was a very good friend to me. Um, he taught me a lot when I was in, I was a new PJ, you know, joining the team and he was there, you know, it was funny, Jesse, cause you know, when you're on a small team like that, whether it's seal team or, you know, green berets or, uh, anything else, you kind of forget rank sometimes. And, you know, you, you're like, cause everybody's like first name basis. And you're like, Hey bro, dude, all that. And you could be like a, you know, E3 talking to an E8, E9 talking like that. And, you know, once I, uh, we were talking and during a training mission and I, I, I kind of interrupted to say something was stupid. What we were doing was dumb. And I, I used to say that a lot. And Nick just turns to me. He's like, Hey, why don't you shut your effing mouth <laughs> and give me the old nice hand to the face. And I was like, well, and I, you know, this is like a laid back alley boy. Never seen him like that before. And I was like, wow. And it just like, I just immediately shut my mouth. And, uh, but you know, despite that though, we were still good friends and he just taught me a lot. And uh, it's just, uh, it's a bummer. You, you just miss the people every day. Speaking with, obviously, BK, everyone knows him on this show, host of the World News with BK podcast, former Air Force PJ. BK, anyone else you want to give a quick shout-out to before we let you go? It's obviously been a heavier show, much different than our normal conversations, yeah. but it's just uh, that's what today is. You know, that's it's it's about them. Yeah, it is about them, uh, Jesse. There's just a lot of guys. There's too many to list. Uh, I can yeah. think of a school, uh, uh, a guy who was a couple – classes ahead of me in the pipeline uh dan zerby and he was killed aboard extortion 17 when it was shot down and that was the uh, chinook that was filled with uh navy seals and air oh. force pjs combat controllers uh he was on that plane and i remember dan came back um when he got to the jsoc team and he kind of talked to our class as we were getting ready to graduate talking about hey this is where you want to be and there was uh bill posh a senior PJ who is a really well-respected guy. And he went down in a helicopter in Iraq and uh, just so many to list Jesse. So uh, yeah. as you are, I'm sure I'll be thinking about them for, for the rest of the day. BK. Thank you so much, my brother. I appreciate you. Thank you, Jesse. Going to be uh look, it's going to be a whole day of that. I get, again, it's a little different. Little different. I, I look normally. Normally, we play this jokingly, but I mean, I hope this is kind of jarring you awake that it's really not. You know, freedom is not free. It's really not, is it? I mean, we look around at all all our blessings, and it's not that you can't count your blessings today. You should. Your family and maybe some time with a uh, a hot dog and a beer or whatever you're doing today. You should. They would want you to, but it's it's important. Always will be important that we do this today. I'm going to read off some more names because I have so many to read and there's still so much to get to. These are names that have been sent in of, of just following. We want their names read on the air. Major Raymond Ray Estelle II, Air Force, Afghanistan. Carlisle, Mene Carlisle Mendez, Saipan. Major Samuel Griffith, Afghanistan. PFC William T. Finley, 1970, Vietnam. He was 19 years old. Kenneth James Snow, 1944, Germany. Second Lieutenant William Bommet Jr., October 26, 1942, Guadalcanal. PFC Robert Sewell Barnes, USMC, September 4, 1967, Vietnam. Lieutenant Colonel Burris Bagley, Air Force, December 17, 1966, Vietnam. His remains were actually recovered in 1996. 
James L. Armstrong, Army, 1971, Vietnam. PFC Edgar Romeo Roy, Baton Death March. You know what? We're going to pause right there because it, this is one of those ones that doesn't get enough uh, talk about anyway. I know, you, I know you've heard of the Baton Death March. Everybody's heard of the Baton Death March. It's just one of those things that's known. A lot of people don't understand just how unspeakable that was for our guys. Remember, we had the Philippines. Before there was a World War II, we had the Philippines. We had a big base there. And this is kind of, it's, it's, it's kind of important to the story for the guys who ended up losing their lives there. The Philippines, remember, we weren't at war prior to World War II, obviously. It was the cushy assignment everyone wanted. I've actually seen now colorized home videos from our army base over there. And it was, you know, I mean, what do you think? It's a bunch of pretty Filipino girls and having a beer and enjoying yourself. It's the cushy job and the tropics with the pre, in the tropics with the pretty girls. And it, it was kind of that assignment. You're not, you know, you're not having a bunch of green beret types over there. This was the kind of softer assignment, or at least they thought these guys were soft. And then the Japanese began to overrun the Philippines as they did. And they ended up trapping our guys on a peninsula, the Bataan Peninsula. We had to basically have a, a tactical retreat back into a big finger, a big peninsula. And the Japanese were coming at us and coming at us and coming at us. And our guys didn't turn out to be all that soft. Our guys had set up an a bunch of lines, uh, uh, defense by depth, really, so we'd have a bunch of fighting holes and stuff like that. And our guys are on this peninsula and the Japanese are, are attacking them and we're shooting back and they're shooting us. But this is, this is one of those things to where as we get to the, you know, the rest of the story on the Bataan death march, this is one of those things to where your mind kind of plays a trick on you. At least it does for me. And I screw up where these guys were and what was going on because the only America I've ever known, I'm 40 years old, the only America I've ever known is we were always kind of, if not the biggest and baddest, it's not like we can't die in places like Iraq and Afghanistan, but we were never going to be dominated, taken over, overrun, even if you bought it. Look, I'll call in an airstrike. Someone will. Someone will bring out planes, whatever we need, there is always something there because we're, no matter where we've been for all of my life, we've been the, uh, the big dog in that area. Well, that wasn't the case in Bataan. And actually, I'm going to finish this story here in just a second. Hang on. It is the Jesse Kelly Show on a very special Memorial Day show. Uh, let's continue our story. In case you missed it, we were talking about some guys who gave their lives at the Bataan Death March, and a lot of people don't understand. They've heard of the Bataan Death March. They don't understand the circumstances around it. All right, the Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor. They declare war. We have an army base in the Philippines. The Japanese storm through the Pacific. I, I mean, no one could withstand them. And they very quickly, we had to have a tactical retreat back to the Bataan Peninsula in the Philippines. Well, as I was saying, we're used to, I mean, for my whole life, I'm 40, for my entire life, we're used to being the, the power in whatever region we're in, the big dog on the block. 
picture this. Picture this. You're in the army. Uh, like 15 minutes ago, you had a cushy assignment in the Philippines. Now you're being assaulted by a vicious, relentless enemy who's more than happy to die for it. You are now stuck on a peninsula, the Bataan Peninsula in the Philippines. You don't have enough food. You very quickly run out of food, and they're eating snakes and bugs and roots and monkeys, and you're starving to death. You're sick. Remember, the jungle, the jungle's the place that will kill you without anybody firing a shot. Malaria and yellow fever and dysentery and all the endless things. So you're stuck on this peninsula. You're starving. You're sick. You have vicious ways the Japanese would fight. They would sneak through our lines. They would slip into your fighting hole at night and knife fight you to death. It was it was horrendous. And again, remember, you were on a cushy assignment 15 minutes ago. Now you're here. And that's not the worst part. The worst part is... There's no help coming. There's no Navy ships on the way. There's no big bombers flying. This is prior to satellites overhead. The Japanese are the big dog in this area. You're on this peninsula starving, sick, scared, and you're alone. And that's where they were on Bataan. And they fought like lions. They fought really, really great. And in the end, the commander, he actually took a lot of heat for this. He was told he was not allowed to surrender, but he thought his men were all going to die if he didn't. So he does surrender with the assurance from the Japanese commander that his men would be treated well. He surrendered with the assurance his men would be treated well. But we hadn't we hadn't had many men captured by the Japanese yet, and we didn't understand in the world in World War II, we didn't understand what exactly that meant. For them, they had a different culture. They did believe it was they believed look, there was the, the, there's a lot of race stuff in there. You know, we believe that we were higher than them and they believed they were higher than us. It's just one of those things. They believed submitting when they had this kind of Bushido code type thing, they believed that was disgraceful. For a lot of different reasons, you did not want to fall into Japanese hands. Remember, 25% of the soldiers who fell into Japanese hands in World War II died. I mean, we can hate the Nazis all we want, and we should, right? Nazis suck. I think the number is like 2% died in the care of the Germans. The Germans would feed you, clothe you, everything... Japan, not so much. So we surrender in mass. Now, I, again, this is something else that's not known as I try to wrap this up here because we have a lot else to get to. Our guys who are surrendering to the Japanese in Bataan, they're not young, fit, ready to go. I mean, they may be young. Remember, I just said they're all sick and they're all starving. You're not falling into the hands of, of barbarians in your best state. You're falling in the hands of barbarians and you've lost 30 pounds from dysentery and you're running 102 fever. Oh, and did I mention it's over 100 degrees? And then the Japanese begin to line our guys up and march them miles and miles and miles and miles in the heat. 
They oftentimes wouldn't let them drink water. It was full of unimaginable cruelty. They would ask men if they wanted to drink water. And when the men said yes, they would lead them down to the water and then cut their heads off at the water. Oh, we had guys, I mean, look, we're honoring these guys today. We have guys, imagine living with this the rest of your life. You're there with five or six of your buddies and the Japanese come up and tell your buddies, this guy, dig a hole right here and bury him alive. And if your buddies say no, then they'll just kill all your buddies anyway. So your buddies have no choice but to dig a hole in the ground where you're starving and sick and keeping each other alive, but to dig a hole in the ground and bury you alive. They would just drive over our guys. They would bayonet them. And we, again, we tell all these stories like on Memorial Day, and we told some today about valor and charging in and overcoming, and we tell, we tell all these things, and all those things are wonderful, and all those things matter. We shouldn't forget how many of our guys die in situations that are just unimaginable like this. How many POWs did we lose in places like Vietnam? Not just Japan. I mean, this goes beyond it. How many POWs did we lose? And they died alone. So many of these guys, they died alone. They died sick. They did not die quickly. And they gave their life for the country and they deserve a day. Again, this is why this is why this day is just reserved for them. They deserve a day to honor them. They deserve a day to honor them. Kyle Nolan, USMC, December 21st, 2006. Wendell Ray Wheat, 1966, True Lie, Vietnam. Private Keegan Stowe and Furlong, May 17th, May 7th, 2019. Staff Sergeant Umberto Timoteo, Sergeant Frank Carvel, Sergeant Ryan Doltz, Specialist Christopher Duffy, all four of those guys died on June 4th, 2004 in Operation Iraqi Freedom from an IED. Staff Sergeant William Jerome Brooks, May 5th, 2005, Iraq. On and on and on it goes. All right, we still have Green Beret Clay Martin coming up. We have Braxton McCoy coming up. We're going to get to uh, more. We're going to get to Medal of Honor citations, Distinguished Service Cross citations, as much stuff as I have time to get to. That's what we're going to get to today on a on a special Memorial Day episode of the Jesse Kelly Show. It is the Jesse Kelly Show, final hour of the Jesse Kelly Show. Going to do one more hour honoring the fallen today on Memorial Day. I know it's a different show, but that's just, look, it's how it's going to be every Memorial Day. We're going to do a show and we're going to honor the fallen here. Joining me now is, of course, author of outstanding books like Prairie Fire. More importantly for today, former Marine Scout Sniper, Marine Vietnam, and longtime Green Beret Clay Martin joins us now. Clay, who do you want to honor this Memorial Day? Except for the Marine Vietnam part. I'm not that old. Oh, yeah. Did I say <laughs> Vietnam? <laughs> Long time. Marine recon, Marine scout sniper is what I meant to say. Go ahead, Clay. It's been a long day, brother. Hey, man. Uh, yeah. Hey, thanks for having me on, dude. I wanted to uh, talk about a couple of people today if we, uh, if we had some time. 
Uh, first was uh, Master Sergeant Eden Pearl, who was a legend of the uh, Force Recon community. Coolest dude you ever met. Uh, super hold nice on one guy. sec. Hold on one sec, Clay. What's Force Recon for people who don't know? Uh, Force Recon back in the older days was the uh, special operations component of the Marine Corps uh, before MARSOC was founded. Okay, please continue. So, uh, Eden Pearl, like I say, he's the coolest dude around. I actually checked into uh, Recon as a, young, as a Lance Corporal, so when I got there, and uh, he was already an old hand, but uh, just the coolest dude you ever met. Like, that's a rough place to be a new guy, uh, but uh, he, he made it so it wasn't that way. Uh, uh, he stayed in the in the Force Recon community after I, I crossed deck and left the Army, and I did tours in like 2004, 2005. It was actually one of the uh, the plank holders helped to uh, found uh, MARSOC. Uh, he got really chewed up in 2009, went to a village, got in this big old gunfight, and uh, actually hit a bomb on the way out. And uh, he ended up losing two legs and an arm right then, as well as received uh, burns over 90% of his body. Oh. Yeah, it was awful. I mean, just absolutely awful. Uh, they said he was probably the most wounded guy that had ever like lived, you know, like 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 recovered for a while. And I ended up dying of his wound uh, almost six years later uh, at his home in uh, San Antonio. But uh, you know, made a, a terrible sacrifice. Oh man, that is. Uh... All right, who else, Clay? Uh, next, I, w- I wanted to talk about uh, Nathan Winder who was uh, a friend of mine from the Special Forces course, actually. I was actually born in Korea. <laughs> Came over, joined the Army, uh, became a Special Forces medic, and was assigned to our uh, first Special Forces group. And this is uh, definitely one of those weird ones in that you know, these worlds overlap. I hadn't seen uh, Nate in years. And I got called out in uh, 2007 with a commando company to uh, go down south this place called Dewinny in Iraq uh, because this team had been just hit hard. Got their team house blown up. Uh, two people actually died, one of which was uh, Nate Winder. And uh, so we had to go down and, and kind of help clean up the mess. But, uh, Nate actually died in a, a contact in that place called Dewinia, which was an absolute hellhole. Uh, Why? What was with that place? Tell us about it. It was where a lot of the... Uh, sh- uh, militia would train on their way to Baghdad. So they would bring these guys straight out of Iran and would come over there because it was kind of like their little training grounds. They were very strong down there. They'd fight with whoever was there for a while, and then they'd take whoever survived up to the uh, the big show in, in, in Baghdad. So, I mean, always fresh fighters, always a really nasty place. And uh, Nate ended up succumbing to a small arms fire. Going to treat another guy that was wounded. I didn't know until after the fact. But, yeah, really, really wild stuff. Clay, thank you so much for calling us and, and, and honoring a couple of our fallen today. Anything else you want to say before we sign off? Hey, brother, thanks for having me on. I, I appreciate this every year. And, uh, you know, this is, uh, this is a really good show, and I'm, I'm glad that you do this. Be good, my man. You too, man. Tough, man. It's brutal. I, Jesse, my dad was at Anzio July 20, or January 22nd, 1944 to June 5th, 1944. On this day in 1944, U.S. 5th, Ar- 5th Army had been pinned down for 127 days. 
It would take 10 more days of hell and help from the British to break out and take Rome. He says it's not well known because of something going on at Normandy. 27,200 casualties of which 4,800 paid the ultimate price. Please remember them on Memorial Day. Says I can use his name. His name is Marvin. In case you don't know what this is, this whole Anzio Italian campaign. I've often said this. The Italian campaign, the Italian portion of World War II is by mile the most undertold part of that war. I, I mean, there are parts that obviously when you, 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 everyone thinks about the highlights when you think about World War II. You think about World War II, you're going to think about the Holocaust. You're going to think about Hitler. You're going to think about the, the invasion of Normandy. Uh, I talk a lot about the Pacific portion of it. You know, the, the atomic bombs at Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki. You're, you're going to know about all these things or at least have some general base of knowledge. People do not have a general base of knowledge of the living hell our guys went through in the Italian campaign and how many of our guys we lost. Did you even know 4,800 died there? And it's something you have to understand about Italy. It, it, it really came into play here is, is Italy, when we landed, when we were fighting on the, on the Italian peninsula, we weren't fighting the Italians really. By this point in time, the Italians had kind of cashed in their chips and given it up. Well, Hitler, he knew having Italy was critical because it protected his southern part of Europe. So the Italians, who were frankly pretty worthless in World War II, they got bounced and in came a bunch of highly trained Germans. In the Italian countryside, it's all mountains and rivers. It's one gigantic living hell to fight in, all mountains and rivers. And so FDR... He, look, the whole thing was probably mostly his fault, but Churchill has to own some of it too. Churchill was trying to ease the pressure off of them, and they were trying to figure out how do we do this, and and uh, this is when all that soft underbelly of Europe came out. Italy, soft, it's the soft underbelly. Well, it may have been the soft underbelly when the Italians were manning the guns, it wasn't no soft underbelly when the Germans did. And this is post George Patton getting sacked. A lot of you know the George Patton story. The greatest offensive general, certainly on the American side in World War II, walks in a hospital, sees some guys suffering with PTSD, slaps one, pulls a gun on another, gets publicly reprimanded. Now, they didn't toss him out of the army, but they basically sidelined him. He went and did some distraction stuff that was very important for Normandy. Now, I only tell you that to tell you this. We had a bunch of B-team generals in charge who would head up the Italian campaign. And we just had other parts of the war where we put better guys. Look, there's a lot of reasons for it. But... I tell you that to tell you this. When we landed in Italy, we took Sicily first, and then we started this Anzio campaign, and we started the Italian campaign. Our guys got on shore, and the Germans start bombing us to death with artillery, just start lobbing artillery at our guys, and our guys are dying. Again, heroes. The heroes we're honoring today, our guys are dying. Well, we had a bunch of weak indecisive generals in charge at the time and they wouldn't push in and get us off the beach 
So our guys were just dug in, getting pounded to dust. That's why we lost so many guys in the Italian campaign. And look, that's just a small part of it. Eventually, we broke through. They had to land. He said he said uh, uh, help from the British attacking Italy's east coast. People had to land north of us to try to distract the Germans and pull us off us. It's a long, awful story. And a lot of brave men went over there and died in that place because of a lot of incompetence. And it's a good day. It's a good day to honor them. It is a good day to honor them. Getting to as much as I can here. Hey, Jesse, I'd be honored if you can read Tom Kennedy's name on the air Monday. He was my ranger brother from another mother when we were stationed in Korea together with the 1st 15th Field Artillery 2nd Infantry Division. In 2012, he was killed in Afghanistan by a scumbag suicide bomber. He left behind his wife and two small, two small children. I think of him every Memorial Day and will never forget. He says, Rangers lead the way. He says, I can say his name on the air and Semper Fi. His name is Ernie. It's, shoot, it's our, it's our honor, Ernie. Please honor my mother's uncle, aviation radio man, third class Norman Roland Brissett, on your Memorial Day show. He was killed by the atomic bomb in Hiroshima while he was being held as a POW 1,300 feet from Crown Zero. He survived the initial blast with one other POW and died 13 days later from radiation burns. He was only 19 at the time. I'm sure many people don't realize how many American POWs were killed during that bombing. Could be an interesting history segment on the show. We are not done. We still have Braxton McCoy. We have we have much more on this Memorial Day Jesse Kelly show. It is the Jesse Kelly Show on a Memorial Day, and it is a day to honor the fallen. Reminder, though, you can enjoy yourself today. Gather with family and friends. Have fun and eat some hot dogs. Do your thing. Just make sure you remember what the day's about. It's about them. It's about the ones we can't thank, frankly. Maybe you're a dog person. Look, I'd, I wasn't sure if I wanted to do this, but... Dogs really have done some really awesome things in combat, and I don't know what this dog did. We looked. I can't find it. But Chips the dog in World War II Europe, for his actions during the war, he was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, Silver Star, and Purple Heart. However, these awards were later revoked due to an Army policy preventing official commendation of animals. In 2019, he was posthumously awarded the Animals in War and Peace Medal of Bravery. So whatever you did, Chips, I appreciate it. Good job. All right, this is a Navy Cross citation for Clayton Leroy Roberts in Korea. The President of the United States of America takes pride in presenting the Navy Cross posthumously to Staff Sergeant Clayton Leroy Roberts United States Marine Corps for extraordinary heroism in connection with military operations against an armed enemy of the United Nations while serving as leader of a light machine gun squad in Company B, 1st Battalion, 1st Marines, 1st Marine Division in action against enemy aggressive forces in the Republic of Korea on the night of the 27th of October, 1950. When a sudden, devastating night assault by a numerically superior and well-concealed enemy force was launched on the right squad position of his platoon, necessitating the shifting of the remainder of the platoon to avoid encirclement, 
Sergeant Roberts voluntarily remained in position with his machine gun in order to cover the movement of the platoon and protect several casualties in the vicinity of his gun. Despite the tremendous danger from hostile small arms and automatic weapons firing at close range, he steadfastly held his position, continuing to fire into the face of the masked enemy while his platoon took up new positions on the main line of defense without further losses. When his position was finally overrun, he still refused to give up the fight and engaging the first swarm of enemy in hand-to-hand combat until overcome by sheer strength of numbers, he fell mortally wounded. By his superb courage and indomitable fighting spirit, he saved the lives of many members of his platoon and contributed materially to the successful repulse of the hostile attack. His staunch devotion to duty in the face of insurmountable odds reflects the highest credit upon Sergeant Roberts and the United States Naval Service. He gave his life for his country. Again, some of these, you read these and you say to yourself, how in the world does that guy not win the Medal of Honor? And remember what they're talking about here. In Korea, when we got clear up close to the Chosen Reservoir and we dug in, we kind of discovered at the end, we kept getting intel, but they ignored it, that we were surrounded by hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Chinese troops, just human waves. And at night, the Chinese troops would amass close to our positions. Our guys took these hilltop positions and you formed a perimeter and the Chinese would amass and they would blow bugles and blow whistles as signals to each other of when to go and when not to go. And they would just send wave after wave of humans at you because there were so many they didn't think they could possibly lose. And because remember, they were communists, so they didn't have any value of human life. They would send a wave armed with a weapon at our guys, and then they'd send a second wave with no weapon whose job it was to pick up the weapon of all the people who died in the first wave, and they would have a wave behind all of them whose job it was to sit there and kill anybody who turned around and ran back away so the human waves didn't retreat. They were waves. They kept coming, and it's at night. You're this guy. You're dug in. It's freezing. It's pitch black, and all of a sudden you are jarred loose by a bunch of bugles and whistles, and you're looking out. Remember, this is the mountains. This is not the streets. There aren't street lights. You can't see. So we would fire flares up into the air to illuminate a certain area. You're freezing. It's loud. You don't know what's going on. They fire off a flare. The flare pops off, and you're looking at hundreds of people often with bayonets running towards your position and you just start firing. And in the midst of all this, because other parts of your position are already overrun, you have to move. Your platoon, parts of your platoon have to move to make sure you seal up any holes. You volunteer and you stay there. And it's one thing to go through what I just described with the cold and the waves and the the noise and the guns and the bayonets and everything else. It's one thing to do that when you have someone by your side. When you have a friend by your side who's going to be there for you. It's one thing to do that. It is another thing entirely. I've always, I mean, I admire all these, but I've always admired these ones. It's another thing entirely to do that when you're alone. 
And not only alone, when you're alone on purpose, when you say, no, everyone else go, I'll stay behind, I'll die, I'll give it up for you. And at the end, when he knew, and he knew it was the end, when you're surrounded and they're all around you and they're stabbing you and shooting you, and you, you know it's the end, you don't curl up in a ball, you don't cry, you just decide, no, no, I'm pulling out my hands, uh, a shovel, a knife, whatever I have, and I'm taking as many people with me as I can. Clayton Leroy Roberts. Remember the name. This, those are the people we honor on a day like today. No, those are the day. Those are the people we honor. All right. I have uh, Braxton McCoy, Army guy, got blown up in Iraq, and he lost a couple guys he knew over there. A couple guys he wants their names read. He wants them honored on this day, and we will do that on this Memorial Day. And again. Uh, if you get, end up wanting to email the show, anything you want, you know that's fine. Anything is fine on the show. Jesse at jessekellyshow.com. If you missed any part of that Javier Mackey interview, obviously I know that was what, that was a jaw dropper. We kept him on for an hour walking us through someone's Medal of Honor citation. We're going to have that as part of the podcast, and I think Chris is going to separate that out as a separate podcast too if you want to spread that around for everybody. All right, Braxton McCoy, next. It is the Jesse Kelly Show, and joining me now, someone else you probably already know from the show on this Memorial Day, my friend Braxton McCoy. Braxton, before we get into who you want to honor on this day, tell people who you are. Uh, I'm just a horse trainer in Idaho. (laughs) I spent a little time in the military and wrote a book, and otherwise I'm just a dad and a horse trainer. He wrote a book called The Glass Factory because he got blown up, and now he's a bona fide cowboy, even though his beard's pretty weak, but we're not going to go into that today. We are going to go into honoring the fallen, though, today, and he has a couple people he wants to tell us about. Maybe you remember he told us about them last Memorial Day, but most do not. Braxton, who gets honored today? Um, Sergeant, Sergeant uh, Adam Cam is a Marine. He's a dog handler that was with us. And then uh, Lieutenant Colonel Mike McLaughlin was out there. We were we were securing, we were providing security for some Marines that were working on recruiting Iraqi police officers. And Sergeant Cam came out to help with. He was a dog handler and came out. Why to did help the Marines out. have dog handlers? First of all, why did they have them, Braxton? Boy, I think it goes all the way back to uh, Vietnam. But the way we used them, I, you know, I'm not a dog handler, so I could be speaking out of school here. But the way they used them over there, uh, at least in in my time, was for bomb detection and also some crowd control stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And this dog, Bruno, was his name. He, Adam's dog, Sergeant Camp's dog, he located this suicide bomber in the crowd and grabbed a hold of him and then the bomb detonated and uh killed adam and uh colonel mack and the you know it it feels terrible to think this way but it's um really the 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 actions of of adam and uh, sergeant can and uh bruno's probably saved a lot of american lives because if a suicide bomber had got inside the building and detonated it had been a whole bunch worse at least on americans uh so 
they're the heroes on multiple levels. And I think back to, you know, I like to bag on officers a lot for good reason most of the time, but Colonel, Colonel Mack, you know, the fact that he'd be out there on the line with a bunch of E4s, E5s, E6s says, I mean, just there to a military guy, you really couldn't say anything bigger about the man's character. He, you know, he could have been just like every other officer and not been out there, but he, he was out there and uh, it was, he was, he was just like that, man. He, when we got to Ramadi, it was in 05, it was pretty hot. We were, we were pretty dang busy. And Hold on, pause real a, quick. Hold on, yeah. pause real quick, Braxton. Ramadi, Iraq. Uh, the name's probably vaguely familiar to a lot of people. Explain what. Explain what the deal is. Why are you even there? Why are they send in Braxton McCoy? Well, Ramadi was what. What really happened with Ramadi was the Battle of Fallujah. So Ramadi's a college town, kind of the first big city between Syria and Baghdad, and it's a college town. And uh, so. In order of succession, would go Ramadi, Fallujah, Baghdad. If you were traveling from uh, west to east, so when the Battle of Fallujah happened in 2004, the Marines and the Army kind of wiped out a lot of the insurgency, but a, a bunch of the others sort of shuffled over to Ramadi. So in 05, Fallujah had calmed down a little bit, and Ramadi had kind of gotten super like pretty busy. I mean, it was just daily gunfights and. It was it, it was it, it was a hell of a place to be, to be honest. It was it was busy, and um, so when we got there, uh, I was on a PSD team at the time, and what's that? Our office, uh, personal security detail. So it's like the guy that goes around and tries to keep majors and colonels from getting themselves killed, and maybe mm. a U.S. dignitary if they come over, and kind of like the the military's idea of a secret service, sort of, except for with less training and way less of a budget um when we got over there the 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 upper echelon officer wise was just really not interested in going out and and doing much because it was just that hot and but colonel mack was never like that he ended up developed his own psd team and he was out doing basically the job of uh some other people he just wanted to be in the fight all the time and i think it shows the fact that he was out there with us that that it wasn't just bluster, you know, he was always really out there. And I, I know for like the average civilian, it, it's probably hard to understand the gap between an E five and a Lieutenant Colonel, but is so far as in terms of authority in the military, but it is a tremendous gap. Mm -hmm. Um, so for him to just be willing to put his, his self out there like that, it just, it speaks just incredible volumes about him. And I, I'm a father of four now, and uh, ooh, this one gets me sometimes. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> uh, Colonel Mack was about my age uh, at the time, you know, about the age I am now at the time, and he had, I think, three daughters. And, man, I just the, – the amount of courage it would take knowing what you had at home and what you uh, were really putting on the line is just – I mean, it's baffling to me. I was a 19 year old kid, you know, I didn't have hardly anything to lose in comparison to this guy. So to see, to see someone behave that way is, I mean, it, I think about it every day. I mean, every single day I think about what he was willing to do 
and it is. I mean, I hope one day I'm half the man that guy was. That's what they give up, everybody. That's what they give up. Three daughters. We'll never get to walk him down the aisle. We'll never get to bounce his grandkids on his lap. Went out there and gave it all for all of us. So that's that's what it's about. Braxton McCoy, my brother, Semper Fi, I appreciate you. Thank you for telling us about these heroes. Thanks, brother. God bless. And look, I I hate to keep saying it that way, but it's true. They gave up so much, and that's why we always... That's why we want to do this show every single year for Memorial Day because it is about something more. It is about what they gave up. Lieutenant Peter Kowalski, March 22nd, 1945, Germany. Dick Pasolnot, July 7th, 1968, Vietnam. Captain Jeffrey Allen Rather, December 22nd, 1982, West Germany, died in a plane crash. David Gray Prentice, June 14th, 1970. Two weeks left on his tour. First Lieutenant Chris Bull, Air Force, October 13th, 1987, South Korea, in an accident. Charles Kassler, Union Army, in the, in the, uh, died in Mississippi. Raymond Buchan, July 2007, Iraq. Raymond W. Cunningham, Army, November 14th, 1942, died in a Japanese POW camp. Guess what he survived? Baton, the death march I told you about earlier in the show. William Fletcher, France, World War II. Corporal John J. John G. Joyce, February 24th, 1969, Vietnam. Killed within a week of deployment. Lance Corporal Danny Morris, 2007, Iraqi Freedom. PFC Boyd Kim Ray, September 17th, 1944, Northern Italy. Jeremy Wise, Navy SEAL. Died December 30, 2009, Afghanistan. Ben Wise, January 15, 2012, Afghanistan. Edward A. Schroeder, August 3, 2005, died from an IED. Lieutenant General John B. Tillou, June 26, 1945, Formosa. Corporal James Milio, USMC, 2003. Mark Evan, Corporal Mark Evan, Marine Corps, April 3, 2003. Lance Corporal Juan Venagas, USMC, April 7, 2005. Lance Corporal Ryan Mayen, USMC, December 21, 2006. Lance Corporal Ryan Burgess, USMC, December 21, 2006. On and on it goes. I will get to as many more names as I can possibly get to in our final segment here as we honor the fallen on Memorial Day. It is the Jesse Kelly Show on a Memorial Day, final segment of this Memorial Day special show. Hope you have had a wonderful day today with family and friends. Remember, that's allowed. It's not what the day's about, but it's allowed, and the fallen would want you to have that. But I hope you also have taken the time, I know you have, to honor the fallen, to remember the true meaning behind this day. I'm going to read just a couple more of these before we... Get ready to sign off here. And just a heads up, uh, after I say that's all, that's normally the end of the show. Tonight's going to be a little different. I'm going to say that's all. And then I'm going to play Taps in its entirety. And it's about a minute long. You have your own life. It's not my business to tell you what to do. If you would stay for the entire minute and take that minute to dwell on all who we've lost, 
I think that would probably be a very appropriate way to sign off on Memorial Day. Probably a, an extremely appropriate way to honor them. No, let's go to let's do another Medal of Honor. Jack William Kelso, Marine, Korea. He was 18 years old. This is 1952. The President of the United States, in the name of Congress, takes pride in presenting the Medal of Honor posthumously to Private First Class Jack William Kelso, United States Marine Corps for conspicuous gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty on the 2nd of October, 1952, serving as a rifleman for Company I, 3rd Battalion, 7th Marines, 1st Marine Division, in action against enemy aggressor forces in Korea. When both the platoon commander and the platoon sergeant became casualties during the defense of a vital outpost against the numerically superior enemy force attacking at night, Remember all that Korea stuff. Under the cover of intense small arms, grenade, and mortar fire, Private First Class Kelso bravely exposed himself to the hail of enemy fire in a determined effort to reorganize the unit and repel the onrushing attackers. Remember, this kid's 18 years old. Forced to seek cover along with four other Marines in a nearby bunker, which immediately came under attack, he unhesitantly, unhesitantly, picked up an enemy grenade which landed in the shelter, rushed out into the open, and hurled it back at the enemy. Although painfully wounded when the grenade exploded as it left his hand, and again forced to seek the protection of the bunker when hostile fire became more intensified, Private First Class Kelso refused to remain in his position of comparative safety and moved out into the fire-swept area to return the enemy fire, thereby permitting the pinned-down Marines in the bunker to escape. Mortally wounded while providing covering fire for his comrades, Private First Class Kelso, by his valiant fighting spirit, aggressive determination, and self-sacrificing efforts in behalf of others, served to inspire all who observed him. His heroic actions sustain and enhance the highest traditions of U.S. Naval service. And he gallantly gave his life for his country. Air Force Cross, President of the United States, authored by Title IX, Section 8742, United States uh, Code, takes pride in presenting the Air Force uh, Cross posthumously to Airman First Class Charles Douglas King, United States Air Force, for extraordinary heroism in connection with military operations against an opposing force as a pararescue specialist in an HH-3E rescue helicopter of Detachment 1, 40th Aerospace Rescue and Recovery Squadron, 3rd Air Rescue and Recovery Group, Nankum Phantom Royal Air Royal Thai Air Base, Thailand, an action near Ban Lathama, Mahaksia District in Laos on the 25th of December, 1968. On that date, Airman King was aboard a helicopter engaged in the recovery of a downed U.S. Air Force pilot from an extremely hostile area. With complete disregard for his own safety, Airman King voluntarily descended on a rescue hoist more than 100 feet to the ground to aid the injured pilot. Once on the ground, he carried the rescue device to the pilot, freed him from the parachute, secured him to the rescue device, and then used the cable to hoist cable hoist to drag the pilot to a point near the hovering aircraft. Suddenly, enemy soldiers closed in and directed automatic weapons fire at Airman King, the injured pilot, and the helicopter. Though wounded, Airman King, in an extraordinary display of courage and valor, placed his comrades' lives above his own by refusing to continue their exposure to murderous enemy fire. 
Without taking time to secure himself to the hoist cable, he radioed that he was hit and for the helicopter to pull away. Airman King made this selfless decision with the full realization that once the helicopter departed, he would be alone, wounded, and surrounded by armed hostile forces. Through his professional dedication, aggressiveness, and extraordinary heroism, Airman King reflected the highest credit upon himself and the United States Air Force. Picture that. Alone in Laos, knowingly making yourself alone. You're down there to rescue somebody. Sorry, I'm under fire. I'm hurt. I'm scared. I know I'm going to die. No, helicopter, you save yourself. I'm going to stay back here. I'm going to say one final thing on this Memorial Day before we sign off. There are countless, countless people, countless people you probably know who have given their lives for this country. Honor them today. And remember, you're not just honoring them for their sake and remembering their names and remembering their deeds for their sake. This is part of protecting the future of your country, showing the next generation that that kind of selfless service and duty and sacrifice, showing them that it is honored is worth something. It's worth a great something. I sit down with my sons and I try to come up with the words I want to make them be the kind of guy who tells the helicopter, go away. I'm going to sign out of here. Go away. You save yourself. Let's all be like that, all right? Let's all be like that on this Memorial Day. Let's honor the fallen. So again, I'm going to sign off here, and then I'm going to play taps in its entirety as we honor these men. That's all. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my new podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, chronicles my six decades in professional basketball, from growing up in the sport to becoming one of sports TV's first female broadcasters. Join me as I dig deep into the game's history, unearth some wild stories, and talk to my friends from the world of basketball, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley. 
It's been a wild ride, and now I get to take you with me. Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take D.C. on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.